this is The Reason for Time, Episode 9, a podcast about memory, truth, invention, and how they came together in a novel. As Ethel Witte, Harris Dixon, and I are working to create this podcast in the late summer of 2016, there's trouble in the United States, racial trouble. It always seems to be on the back burner, but the summer of 1919, when Maeve Cura lived in Chicago, it boiled over and culminated in a riot in which 37 people died, most of them black. 500 more were injured, again, most of them black. Over 1,000 lost their homes to fire and vandalism. I didn't know this had happened. I hadn't learned about it in school, even though I grew up just outside the city. The more I read, the more sickening I found the news, because many of the perpetrators of the violence were young Irish men who belonged to what were called athletic clubs. Even the former longtime mayor of Chicago, Richard J. Daly, was a member when he was young. The novelist James T. Farrell's fictional Studs Lonigan and his crew were eager to get in on the trouble. Here's a quote from Farrell with a warning that it's offensive. Studs Lonigan gripped a baseball bat and swung as if stepping into a pitch. He said that when he cracked a dinge in the head, the goddamn eight ball would think it had been Ty Cobb slamming out a homer. Tommy Doyle said the niggers were never going to forget the month of July, 1919. How was I going to treat the race riot? Language came up again. African Americans were called Negro or black then, or colored, I should say. In fact, it was around that time that the NAACP was formed, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Colored was the polite term. The most bigoted, of course, didn't use that word, but another, more hateful. Now rap musicians use the same word as a joke. Language changes. Today, people say African-American or person of color or black, but Maeve's speech and her descriptions had to be true to the time. And being the opinionated fellow I had decided he must be, my streetcar conductor, Desmond Malloy, would say nigger and not as a joke. He'd spit out the word because he didn't like them coming into the city and changing everything. Those who resist change now worry about growing Latino and Asian and Muslim populations in North American cities. Well, back then, Desmond Malloy and Maeve's soon-to-be brother-in-law, Harry, resisted the flood of African-American migrants fleeing poverty and discrimination in the South. An official in the U.S. Department of Labor reported that there had been 43 lynchings of black men in the first nine months of 1919. No wonder people wanted to escape the South. The long-running Chicago Defender, an African-American newspaper, encouraged them to come for jobs and vastly better lives. Chicago absorbed much of the Great Migration. The black population of the city rose 144% in 10 years. With soldiers returning from the war, the competition for jobs and housing was fierce, and you can guess who got the short end of the stick. Because it is a first-person narrative, 
The story of the riots and everything else rolls out from Maeve's point of view. So how was she going to react to the race issue? Well, I couldn't make her intolerant and still like her or respect her as an author must respect the characters she creates. So I grabbed at another shred of my grandmother's past. I'm not exaggerating when I say shred either. Apparently, Grandma and her sister sailed from Ireland to America with a convent of nuns that settled in St. Augustine, Florida. That's all I ever knew. So I researched missionary orders in Ireland. I contacted the Sisters of Mercy in Florida. Had they ever had postulants by the names of my grandmother and her sister? No luck. I looked through everything I could find out about St. Augustine, Florida in the early part of the 20th century. And then with nothing else to go on, I called on imagination again. So Maeve and her sister Margaret had indeed left Ireland with a convent, sailed on the Mauritania, a ship that really did dock in New York Harbor that year, and traveled by train to St. Augustine. I've known that there was such a place as St. Augustine ever since I was a kid, but only the name. I learned that the missions there would have sheltered poor black women and Indian women, and so it is there that Maeve, who was at first afraid of people with dark skin, there at the mission where she learned tolerance for the races. In that respect, she is different from many of the Irish in Chicago then. But isn't it always the way... When my paternal great-grandfather, Thomas Burns, arrived in America, he found signs saying, no Irish need apply. By the early part of the 20th century in Chicago, though, the Irish were doing pretty well. One immigrant group gains a little ground and lords it over the next to arrive. That's how it was in the puzzle that was Chicago in 1919, when, as Maeve says, people with every color of skin mingled on the streets. Having chosen a first-person narrative sort of relieved me of the obligation to present the view of a person of color, but my editor wanted that view. Well, I couldn't just stick it in. The only black person I have as a speaking character in this story is Robert Jordan, and he's not even fully black, but light-skinned, the color of tea with a drip of milk, as Maeve says. Yes, without being false to the narrative, laying something on only to present the other side of the story, Robert was the only opportunity I had. Robert Jordan is Evelyn's boyfriend, Maeve discovered, and when the riots break out, he wants to get Evelyn to safety. I based Robert on a Jesse Binga kind of figure, Jesse was a real estate man on the south side and was bombed out several times. That's what extreme white groups would do when a Negro family moved into a neighborhood, bomb them out. And Jesse Bingo was a frequent target because he was the man who sold homes to Negroes. To be as true as I could to attitudes prevailing in the African-American community of the day, I gave my invented Robert Jordan lines I'd read in reports from the riots in the newspapers and in the big report on the riot and on race relations generally, The Negro in Chicago, a study of race relations and a race riot. 
The study was commissioned by the governor of Illinois following the riot, and it was an important source for me. Here is Ethel Whittier's Maeve with a bit of both sides of the story. Monday, July 28, 1919. We never heard anything that night. Nothing like the screams going on less than five miles away. Not the clubbing, the hollering. The main words spit from thin-lipped mouths, broad-lipped mouths. Never knew of the men dragged off the streetcars. No, not them killed neither until the Monday morning. Me as fresh as I could make myself, my hair washed and still damp. The Japro soap smell rising off my skin and my clothes aired, and them stained drawers hidden where I hid all my material secrets. My writing book, the bathing costume. There was me marching towards the stop full of happiness as if going to a party, not another day at my job. Margaret urging me to slow down, shouting, So he's there at the office, is he? And that's why you're hurrying so. She didn't know it would be even before then I saw my man if the right car came along, and so I skipped a little until I heard the voice of the little newsy hollering, Get your paper and read all about it. Riot in Chicago. Dead. Injured. Shivering, looking around like the trouble stood next to me. Meeting the eyes of others lifted away from a hum of opinion more than actual sensible words to see who stood near. Yet the cars were still running, and we could hear the clack-clack of the ones meant for us. The world had not stopped, and some colored folks, ones I hardly noticed on regular days, lined up along the rails like always. A woman held her head up, her chin pointing out, her in a stylish suit of white clothes, her hat just as white, with a single feather pointing out. Never directed her eyes anywhere but straight ahead. A gentleman in a summer seersucker, a bow-tie, him carry a case could be a lawyer or a businessman. Some younger, not dressed so well, pearl drivers they might be at one of the big downtown hotels. I'd got used to them there. Never appeared unusual at the stop, but only fanned themselves and yawned and chewed away flies rode up from the horse droppings like all the rest of us did. The same today, except I was not the only one glancing over at them. All of a sudden we were noticing differences we'd been living right along. All the races and people from every nation on earth mixed up. You could feel wobbly, not sure of the ground you were standing on, and it was best, sure, easiest, when if kept with our kind. But how could a body manage that in a city like this? My own Margaret about to graft herself onto a Polack. As the streetcar clacked up, my mind was split between anticipation of who I'd see craning his head out the door of the car, sadness about little Janet, and some fear concerning the riots started at the beach just a few miles away from where we, Desmond and I, were after knowing each other in the way the nuns used the word. A negro boy stoned as he swam across the invisible line in the lake, marked where white should swim on one side and colored on the other, his pals challenging the men through the stones, and then the riot began, said the papers. A colored rioter is said to have died from wounds inflicted by policeman John O'Brien, fired into a mob at 29th Street in Cottage Grove. The body, it is said, was spirited away by colored men. Minor rioting continued through the night all over the south side. Negroes found in streetcars were dragged to the street and beaten. They were ordered to the street by white men, and if they refused, the trolley was jerked off the wires. Not a sign of any thugs there at the Halstead stop on the Madison line. Only we weary ones beginning our week, suddenly anxious at what all the news could mean. 
Riot spreading, but how far would we be safe? Would Margaret be walking her way to the shirt factory? And if safe from the rioters and from the Bolsheviks sent bombs in the mail and airships that fell from the sky and morons like Fitzgerald free to work in a building where normal folks like us lived? And if safe from those then starved because of labor trouble at the Union stockyards or forced to walk to the loop because of the strike on the cars? But no, the carmen were not striking today. Maybe not at all. Only the fare's going up by nearly half, and how would Margaret and I manage, with me paying equal to the price of lunch in a cafe just to get to work and back? Still, there was Desmond, yes, and the promise he represented. Not only the tendency he developed to keep that hand touch me in such secret places, that same hand of his over the fare bo box, but more, the moment when he would ask me to become his wife. Desmond was not on the car stopped first and the colored kept to themselves, and Clyde said good morning, same as always, when I bustled past his desk in the Marquette building on my way to the cages to ride up with the other workers. A thinner group that day, and I walked, when I walked into Mr. R's magic shop, didn't it seem like I entered a different age? Sure, a different world, yes, where people believed they could get out of any mess, same as the master himself, as long as they possessed the sensational handcuff act. It wasn't long before the door opened a crack, and I straightened up for a potential customer. But wasn't it Eveline herself? Finger to her lips, whispering, she beckoned me into the hall where her fancy man stood waiting in that same outfit I'd seen the day before, ice cream suit and straw fedora, which she took off and tipped when Eveline introduced us. Mr. Robert Jordan, I'd like you to meet my pal Maeve. Mr. Jordan is a real estate man. He smiled. That big lit-up smile must have made him good at his job. An agent, you know, and he found me a swell place on state, not too far south, but criminy with all that's going on. I can't stay there. You know Jesse Binga, do you, miss? Name's been in the papers just about every week. I wish I could say it had been good news, but they're trying to bomb out Jesse. Unfortunately, it so happens to be one of Mr. Binga's building, buildings where I found suitable accommodation for Miss Eveline. They never said they were staying together, but I didn't want to know. Suitable, he says. Here, I thought she'd break out with that ironic laugh of hers, but Mr. Jordan wasn't finished. It's on account of all the people moving up from the south and needing somewhere to stay, spreading into neighborhoods where white folks live. White folks don't like it. I'm talking about the bombings. Mr. Jordan, and here she winked at him, thinks I ought to get out of town for a while, visit my cousin in Madison, Wisconsin. Well, Madison is not so far. In the United States of America, a man is supposed to be free as a U.S. dollar, no matter what his color. Mr. Jordan was not smiling any more, but shaking his head, addressing someone was not Eveline nor me. A man ought to be able to find a place for his family anywhere in the city he can pay for it, but uh-uh. They say colored folks have no civic pride. They say let the coloreds into a neighborhood, and soon enough you're going to have your gambling dens and body houses. Wellness thing is, Eveline cut in. Mr. Jordan, my pal Maeve don't need a lecture. All you say might be true enough, but I'm not going to risk my neck for that or any fight's not mine. If I have to stay up in Madison a week, I'll stay a week. Maeve, you make Mr. R understand, will you? I don't want to lose my place here, not with what it takes to get a job in this burg. They want to blame that on us, too. Not good enough that colored folks died right alongside white folks over there in the fields of France. No, these thugs like to forget that. They say the only reason our boys signed up was so they could find themselves a white French lady. 
I'm looking from one to the other as they're talking to me, both tall, both, look, both looking down as if I'm the student and thereafter giving me a lesson. It was dim in the hall, but Mr. Jordan's gold ring flashed as he waved his hand from here to there. He was a hand waver, all right, but not the light-hearted fellow who shocked me with his ease with Evelyn the day before. There's talk of the National Guard coming in to quiet things. It'd be better than the Chicago cops who started the trouble. They didn't arrest the guy who threw the rock and killed that colored boy, Maeve. That got things going. That's what he means. It started long before that, Miss Eveline, Miss Maeve. I was born here, and my daddy was born here, and I ought to know. They treat us like we're just off the train, like the plantation colored. It looked like his hand wanted to touch her like his eyes did, but he pulled it back and fingered the tie at his throat instead. Tie had a floral pattern, as I recall, and the scent of bay rum rose off his milky tea skin, and it must have been the same lotion caused the mustache above his full lips to glisten. When we heard the elevator mechanism whirring, he edged himself back against the wall and sort of slid along it towards the stairway exit. Maeve, we are flat in luck to find you here. I thought it'd be Florence. Guess she didn't want to risk her pretty little blonde head. She kept talking as Mr. Jordan continued to back away, doors down from the Chicago Magic Company office, and she moved as if he had a string pulling her, and because she did, I did. All the while, I'm wondering, what if it's Mr. Argett's off the elevator and finds me outside when I said I'd look after the front? And what would he have to say about Evelyn and her fellow if he was her fellow? And I don't know why I was still asking that question. That night, the Monday, I didn't have the news, nor know much of anything except the fear went round the house at Bridie's and all of it aimed toward the south of us, where most of the tens of thousands of Negroes had come up from the south and settled and spread out from there to neighborhoods more white and trying to stay white, as Mr. Jordan had reminded me. Near enough, the riots could spread to West Monroe, and then wouldn't we be hiding in our beds? Adel John, sensing the fear, started to bawl, and Bridie scowled at us and told him, there, there, John, there is nothing to worry about, and wouldn't he like another spoon of potatoes, because food always quieted him. Harry drove his truck by to see we were all right and told of gangs lying in wait for the niggers. He called them niggers then, and until the day he died, even when the papers later said that kind of name-calling was part of all made the trouble, for those people to show up for their jobs at the yards, places it opened for them on account of all the men went to war. But those men, many of them, had come back from the war and deserved to have their jobs back. The colored workers were only servants of big money, whether they knew it or not, Harry said. Margaret walked him down the fire escape, so-called, from Bridie's place. Me? I never knew fear could turn to hatefulness in such a flash. Me with my dreaming of Desmond Bloy and all we'd done, he'd done to me, and the feel of his lips so soft and the taste of lake water on them didn't seem poisoned at all for everything said about the lake. Never could think in a straight line, but the temper of the conversation pulled me back to it. When she came up from the street again, my sister, who'd held the chocolate-skinned babies in her arms same as me, and laughed at the comical expressions in their saucer eyes those years we spent at the mission in Florida. Margaret joined in with the rest. Bridie, her other boarders, Lucille and Frances, and Bridie's old woman relative from somewhere, not Ireland, Mrs. Smith, who said less than me and shared Bridie's table, and ate every scrap, Bridie complained, though John's the one needing it. Them from Bridie's and the two fellows from the floor below, everyone talking mean, even Mrs. Smith, and egging each other on in a spirit made them into a body big enough to stand up to any threat. You could feel it. There, perched on the stair landings at the back, where we tended to gather, Margaret noticed my quietness and challenged me. 
Don't you think so, Maeve? It's too hot to think, and there's too much going on out there. It makes a body dizzy. But what if your fella and you marry and want a place of your own, same as me and Harry? What will you find with all them moving in, taking over? It's a big city, sure. Be careful out there, though. They're pulling them off the cars, and well, they should. But they can't pull them all off, and you got to think they've given the excuse they need to go after white girls. They're always after the white girls, you must have heard. Just months ago, maybe not even that, some upstanding married woman was dragged into an alley on the south side. Didn't you see the story? Luckier scream saved her. One of the young men from the second floor said this, nodding as if he knew it all, and maybe entertaining himself with pictures of a colored man ravishing a white woman. He saw crude cartoons like that on handbills, plastered up on fences in some corners. A memory of Eveline sailed through my mind and caused me to shiver in its wake. But she'd never looked scared. We don't know there'll be cars tomorrow. True, what Lucille reminded us of. And I did not have my inside knowledge then, not having seen my man in the coming-home car, not knowing he lay in a hospital where he should not have been taken, feelings running as they were. Thank you to Ethel Witte, to Alley Impress of Chicago, and Harris Dixon for helping make this podcast. The music you're hearing is Scott Joplin's Bethana, a concert waltz. Visit The Reason for Time on Facebook, post a question or leave a message, and look for it on the shelves of all the online bookstores. Better yet, order it from your local independent bookstore, such as the Book Lady Bookstore in Savannah. Next time, more on the race riots. I'm Mary Burns. Thanks for listening.